Now, please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. If you're new to Benoah Community Church, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts in a preaching series called Life on Mission. Well, today we enter into Acts 25, and we see the Apostle Paul, who's been arrested under various trials now. This is the fifth and final trial in the book of Acts, where Paul stands on trial before King Agrippa. Now, Leanne did a great job reading about Herod, because Herod is the first Herod, Herod the Great, of a Herodian dynasty. Well, King Agrippa is the final Herod of the Herodian dynasty that fills out this family dynasty, which is why I've entitled today's sermon, The Final King. Because these kings were kind of quasi-Jewish, but also installed by Rome. And they had one foot in the Roman Empire and one foot in the nation of Israel. And this is the last. You see Herod over and over and over again in your New Testament, in, in the Gospels, as well as the book of Acts. And at times you go, who is this? And where does this fit? If you think there's one Herod, you'd be wrong. There's, there's about seven or eight of them. But this is the last one. When this Herod dies off, there will be no more Herods. In fact, there will be no more kings in Israel ever again. From the days of King Saul until Herod Agrippa II, because Herod Agrippa I was his father, this ends all of the kingdom language and all of the kings of Israel. The last king. This scene that we're about to look at, not only today, but over the next few weeks, is one of the most elaborate, one of the most detailed scenes of the trials before the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to get to go into the details of the trial of Paul, defending the gospel, defending Christianity. We'll see next week, once again, for the third and final time, Paul sharing his testimony in the book of Acts. So follow along. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 25, verse 13. And this is where Basically, Paul was passed off from Felix to Festus. These were the governors. And then as we saw last week, we saw that uh, Festus was inquiring of Agrippa. So we're going to pull that back in. Agrippa and his sister Bernice are now drawn into this discussion about Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. Verse 13, and I'll read to verse 24 and pray for us. Now, when some days had passed, those days after Paul had appeared to go to Caesar... Um, to be passed up to the court in Rome, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I asked them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. 
Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, behold this man, the final king. Let's pray. Well, King Jesus, as we call out to you this morning, and as was already prayed, you are King of kings and you are Lord of lords. Father God, you are King over Saul and you are King over King Agrippa. You are King over all the present kings of this world. You are King over America. You are King over our president. You are King over Russia. You are King over Ukraine, Lord. You rule and you reign as supreme. And Lord, these tiny monarchs throughout all of church history, and even in this present day, Lord, are ultimately under your sovereign authority, that you turn the hearts of kings whichever way they will go, and you turn our hearts as well. And so God, as we behold Paul, as we behold this king this morning, we pray that we would also behold ourselves and see a mirror into our own souls through this ancient king And Lord, that through looking to King Jesus, our hearts would be changed and submit to him as both King and Savior. Now and always we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the English Standard Version says there as they sit up, Paul, you see this man, but I love the language of behold, and the New American Standard Version says, behold this man. And in a moment, we're going to behold this king because he's drawing our attention to Paul. And then we're going to flip the mirror back and behold the king rather than Paul. But I do want to draw your eyes to Paul at the outset because we have this scene where the apostle Paul is brought in in chains. Later, as he shares his testimony, and Agrippa says, would you persuade me to be a Christian so quickly, Paul? He says, I would that all in this room listening to me were as I were except for these chains. He's brought in in chains. Paul was not a very commanding presence with his outer appearance. Church history records that he's balding. He's got crooked knees. He's got a unibrow. He's got a crooked nose. He's of small stature. Here is a man walking in. Behold this man. But as we behold Paul over the next few weeks as he shares his story once again about the power and grace of Jesus to save him and turn his life around, I also want to behold and turn our eyes back on King Agrippa because his whole trial is before him. And as you see is my custom, I love to dig into the places and people of your Bible because they're real people with real lives, who really encountered the gospel, had a real chance to believe in Jesus. We're really trying to be persuaded in this moment. And I want to put ourselves into his seat, a little bit into his life, as he is hearing these words. Because he is the final king of Israel. And so as we behold this final king, we're going to behold four qualities about him, four attributes And they will all start with the same letters. So if that annoys you, you're welcome. (laughs) All right. Alliteration, each point. Behold the final king's first Christian curiosity. Behold this final king's Christian curiosity. 
At the outset, I've already read verses 13 to 22, so I won't read all of those verses. But look again in verse 22. Agrippa said to Festus, that's the king, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow he said, you will hear him. Festus invites him into his dilemma here. He's not sure how to rule. Festus is fully Roman. He doesn't know how to, ju- to adjudicate this Jewish case, their religion. But his friend here, King Agrippa, is Jewish. He believes the Bible. He believes the prophets. At the end of the Apostle Paul sharing his testimony next week, we'll see. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. His whole family believes the Bible. His whole family's been woven up into the narrative of Jesus from the very outset, which is why in our public reading of Scripture, his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, remember that? The wise men come, and he says, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And Herod, great, Herod the Great is thinking, That's my job. I am king of the Jews. Why are you coming to the king of the Jews and asking where is the king of the Jews? I'm right here. And so he pulls together all of his Bible scholars and they said, whoop, 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 whoop. King of the Jews is from the line of David, born in the city of Bethlehem where David was from. And all of a sudden he sends them off on this recognizance mission to go find them ultimately because he wants to kill this child to preserve his power. Well, that is Herod Agrippa's the second, who we're looking at today's great-grandfather, and his whole family, his whole family's been woven into this Christian story. Great quote by R.B. Rackham. I'll put it up on the screen. So this king's great-grandfather, as I just shared, Herod the Great, had tried to destroy the infant Jesus. His uncle, Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, beheaded John the Baptist and won from the Lord the title Fox. His father, Agrippa I, slew James, the son of Zebedee, with the sword and arrested the apostle Peter. Now we see Paul brought before that Agrippa's son. He is Agrippa II. It's no wonder he's curious about the apostle Paul, right? This is not just like parachuting out of nowhere. And he's like, oh, the way? Christianity? Jesus? Never heard of it before. Their whole family's been brooding over this Christian movement for generations. And their opposition to it, their resistance to it, everything they could do to slow it down, to hoard and control their power up to this very moment— Now, we don't know Herod Agrippa II where he lands in all of this. Like father, like son, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, his father was the one that took glory earlier, remember, in the book of Acts. And they said, behold, the voice of a God and not a man. And his father fell dead right then and there and was eaten by worms. Imagine if that happened. You're thinking, maybe I should not go the way of my father. We don't know how much he's similar or dissimilar to his father, but here he is with his sister Bernice, and we see his curiosity peaked. He's not like, yeah, I heard about this thing. Do whatever you want with them. He says, I want to hear it myself. He's not like, well, we'll get around to it. He's like, tomorrow. He's like, tomorrow you can make it happen? Tomorrow the king will be there. I've just cleared out my royal schedule for the apostle Paul. In one day, 24 hours, not only do they gather, but we'll see in a moment, they pull together all the top officials with great pomp and circumstance. 
You know, his great uncle in Luke chapter 23, if you remember this, Pontius Pilate finds out that uh, Jesus was from Galilee, which was Herod's jurisdiction. Do you remember that? That was his great uncle. And his great uncle was very glad, we're told, to see Jesus. He had wanted to see him for so long. He was hoping that Jesus might do a miracle. Jesus doesn't jump through a hoop for him, so he gets a little mad, passes him back to Pilate, their friends. They were at odds with each other before that, but they become friends again. You just see the curiosity of the Herodian dynasty of both to resist and object and oppose Christianity, but also sort of a, I've been wanting to see Jesus for a while, right? <laughs> I kind of want to talk to the Apostle Paul. There is a curiosity baked into his resistance of Jesus. He does believe the Bible. He does believe the prophets. He does believe the prophecies. And he is not sure to do with all of this. But here's one of the most wealthy, powerful, influential individuals in the entire nation of Israel. And something is missing in his life. Because if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, or maybe you're here today with lots of money, you realize that money doesn't ultimately answer all the big questions of life. It doesn't ultimately satisfy you completely. It doesn't leave you saying, I got it all, and I got it all figured out, right? In fact, sometimes the more you get, the more you realize, like the book of Ecclesiastes, how it's a vapor, how it's a vanity, how it's all a chasing after the wind. And here, this guy has everything, and he knows all about his Bible. But he doesn't have a relationship with God. Not for real. He wants to hear more. And he wants to hear more tomorrow. And before we go to our second point, as we look at the mirror at Herod's life, Herod Agrippa here second, where do you land with this? Maybe you're in the rat race and you think that if you got a little bit more, it would satisfy you. Let Agrippa's testimony and all the wealthy people in your Bible, especially go and read the book of Ecclesiastes later. It's a chasing after the wind, and it will not ultimately satisfy you. It does not ultimately satisfy Agrippa or Bernice. The only thing that gives you true satisfaction is God and a life of God in Christ Jesus. Behold this final king's first Christian curiosity. Secondly, Behold the final king's prominent pomp. His prominent pomp. Verse 23 to 27. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom... The whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write about to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to be unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Now, we've already talked about the expertise of King Agrippa and how he understands not only Roman law, 
but Judaism, and so he's a perfect candidate for this. But I want to draw your attention back to the beginning of this, because remember, within 24 hours, they have turned this whole room around where the king is coming in with great pomp with his sister. This likely means they're wearing their purple royal robes. They got their gold crowns on. The governor's put on his scarlet robe when the state calls together an official meeting. The military leaders are there. The men of great prominence are there. Can you put yourself into this scene, into this room? Literally, the apostle Paul is coming in his prisoner tunic with chains around his arms, likely his ankles, into this room. And all of these people decked out to the nines with golden crowns and royal robes have their attention on the Apostle Paul. The contrast is startling, right? They are all ears for this prisoner who's been locked up for two years. Two years this prisoner's been locked up. I mean, he's had some liberty, some freedom, but overall, again, he's in chains. He's in bondage. They are free and wealthy. He is impoverished. They've got it all. And yet, with all of this great pomp, what I want to appeal to you on this point is that the most free person in that room happens to be in physical chains. That with all the great and prominent pomp of those leaders, on the outside it looks so pretty, but on the inside they are so broken. I mean, the governor is all tied up in knots because he's afraid this guy's appealed to Caesar. He doesn't even have anything reasonable to write to his boss about how this went down. He's like, I let him go to Caesar, and I realized there's no reason I shouldn't have set this guy free. Help me out. Come up with a reason so I don't look like an idiot before Nero. And here is this king and his sister who are here, and their life is a mess. He's 33 years old at this point. She's 32. She's had three failed marriages. First two, she's married off in her late teens. Husband died. Second, husband died. Third, disastrous marriage. She fled her marriage and now lives with her brother. Her life's a wreck. Rumors are rife that their, their relationship was incestuous. I don't know if that's true, but that's the rumor on the street, and they live with that. And obviously, they're very powerful, so no one's going to say it out loud. But it was sufficient enough that it got recorded in church history. And by the way, he was very good friends with Josephus. <laughs> and so if it did get purged out by the Jewish historian, I think there's probably some credibility to that story. Here's a man in his 33s. He's never married his entire life. A single man living with his sister. And here they are, eager to hear more about Christianity. His father died suddenly. All of a sudden, he's thrust into more responsibility. He's got all of this power. But inside, what is their life? My wife and I liked to watch some series together. It's hard for us to find shows that we agree on. Can any married couples? If I like it, she doesn't. If she doesn't, I don't. I grew up in the era of Simpsons, and sometimes, just to clarify, people ask me, do you have a sense of humor? And I said the other day, it's inappropriate. My wife's like, don't say that. It's like Simpsons. Like, that's, as a child, that's the thing. That's why I'll never use humor in the pulpit, because it's usually like the itchy and scratchy stuff. But anyway, it's just... It's not good. It's not good for a preacher to do that. But we found the crown, and we both like the crown. And you see from me, I'm kind of a history guy now. I get that, I guess, from my father. I just like to get into these characters. 
And if you watch the crown, one of the things that becomes very evident very quickly, if you've ever heard the phrase, heavy is the head that wears the crown. These children are born into these dynasties, and this great majestic castle really becomes your prison. They don't really know a real world outside of this, and they're thrust with all of this responsibility on their shoulders. And here's his sister who's fleeing back to her brother because he's the only safe person left. And maybe he's not safe if their relationship is such as it was, but either way, here is a brother and sister that are standing by each other in their mid-30s, right? With nowhere to go in this pomp and all of this show, and probably they can't be real to anybody in this room. And Paul is here in his chains and he is completely joyful and free. And they got a golden crown and it is crushing their very souls. Great pomp, great prominence, great spiritual poverty. The things that we find joy in, the things that we think will make us ultimately happy. I said it under the first point. I want to bring it back here again. Prominence. And pump, keeping up with the Joneses. These are dead end streets and they will destroy your very soul. Now, if you're wealthy, praise the Lord. I don't think the Bible teaches a theology of poverty that you have to divest yourself of everything if you're going to be godly or spiritual. There are great saints in the Bible who use their wealth for great good. But wealth makes a terrible master and makes a wonderful servant. Don't let it rule your life. Use everything that God has given you for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. We see in this picture a picture of prominence, a picture of pomp, and also a couple who are completely and utterly trapped, completely and utterly fallen, completely and utterly trapped in sin. You know, in Acts chapter 9, when Ananias was about to lay hands on Paul to restore his sight, do you remember this? Because he was blinded on the road to Damascus. Ananias is like, that's crazy talk, Jesus. I'm not going to go to this guy. He kills people, Jesus. Not only does uh, Jesus assure Ananias he should do it, he says this, that man, that man right there, he is my chosen instrument, Ananias. And he will stand one day before kings. He will stand before the Gentiles and he will stand before the Jewish nation. And I just want to draw your attention, just promise made, promise fulfilled before we go to the third point, right? He is literally before the king giving his testimony. And all those years prior, King Jesus stepped onto the scene and said, I have some kings for you to talk to, Ananias. You give him his sight back through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're off to the races. And here Paul is nearing the end of his life, standing one day before King Nero, but right now before King Agrippa. Behold, behold the final king's, not only his Christian curiosity, but also his prominent pomp. Thirdly, behold this final king's fortunate familiarity. Fortunate familiarity, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate 
that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar, there it is, with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. His fortunate familiarity. Now, we're going to save for next week the actual defense that Paul makes. So if you're worried that I'm, I'm ramping up for the whole thing to come, take a sigh of relief. That, that's next week. That's part two, all right? I just want to set this whole thing up for next week, all right? This is where we're at. He says, I am so, first he says, you have permission to speak, right? Like the king says, all right, it's your turn. He starts to speak. He says, I am so fortunate I am so fortunate before you, King Agrippa, that I finally get to make my defense because you are familiar with all of this. And again, I keep saying this, so why is he so familiar with this? His whole family, since Herod, uh, the, Herod the Great, great-grandfather, all of his relatives have been intertwined into this whole story, right, up until this point. So he's very familiar with this whole thing up to this point. He understands Roman law. He understands Jewish law. He was appointed in this little northern kingdom, just uh, like it was a small kingdom. And then over time, Nero gave him greater jurisdiction over all of Galilee and gave him permission to appoint the future high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. That's right. So this is how this went down. Remember that the high priests were supposed to be the Aaronic priests coming from the line of Aaron? That's all done. These are not Aaronic priests anymore. These are installments from Caesar. All right, Caesar gets to pick the kings and the kings get to pick the high priest. Do you see how that has worked? Which is also why it's so corrupt. But these are the guys that basically are now also in charge of not only politically governing, they're also in charge of the ecclesiastical governing. They pick the priests. Remember how Paul ended up here? He was at the temple in Jerusalem. And who ordered Paul to be struck? One of the high priests. Full circle back. The guy that put him into place. Paul now gets his ear. He's very familiar. It is most fortunate, most fortunate that Paul gets to speak to this King Agrippa face to face and debrief how this really went down. But beyond his political and religious influence and authority, it's also much more close and personal to his home. Because Agrippa doesn't only have one sister, he has two. He has Bernice, who's sitting next to him with her crown on. Do you know who his second sister is? Chapter 24, verse 24, if you want to flip in your Bibles. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul to hear him and speak about faith in Christ Jesus. His second sister was Drusilla. Oh, man. Those of you who've been around for a while, follow here. Felix is his brother-in-law. And for the last two years, his sister and his brother-in-law were pulling Paul in to hear more and more. He wanted money. Drusilla's Jewish. She's listening in. He's perplexed by this. Do you see the family connections? It is most fortunate that Paul finally gets a standing before this individual because his whole family back to his great-grandfather and his sister for two years has been talking to the Apostle Paul, and families talk. This is not the first time he's hearing about it, but it's the first time he's getting to hear it with his own eyes and ears face to face. 
the providence of God, the providence of God leaps off of our Bibles, doesn't it? I'm not a guy that believes in luck. I believe in the providence of God. I, I don't like to say good luck, um, not to be a legalist about it. I just don't believe in luck. But I will say sometimes, like, because Paul uses the word fortunate, most fortunate. I, it's given me permission, you know, to say I'm, this is a very fortunate circumstance here. Because the stars don't control the world, right? Our, our uh, whatever you want to do, the tea leaves, none of that controls the world. The horoscope does not control the world. You have a heavenly father who orchestrates the entire world. All of the details, including right up to his sister was over there, was married to that person. And in this moment, Paul says, wow, isn't this fortunate? Isn't this providential? Look how this all lines up. In all of our lives, it's fortunate you're sitting here today, by the way. As Ron prayed earlier that you woke up this morning and God brought you into this place. There are millions of people in Delaware County who are driving past this morning not listening to the word of God. It's most fortunate today that you're under the word of God. There are millions of people today because it's daylight savings time who accidentally missed it. Not you. Most fortunate, isn't it? That you are here today. There's a fortunate circumstance that brought him into this place for such a time as this. And he is the most familiar person to adjudicate this case for the Apostle Paul. Have you ever looked at your lives, your life, and said, there's the fingerprints of God that brings me to this place, to this church, to this city, to this family, and all of this to bring me into an earshot of this message of Jesus. To this apostle. To this moment where this man locked in these chains has a message from this God that I believe in from the prophets for me. Our lives are marked with the fingerprints of God. There is no accidents. There is no luck. There is no oops just by chance. Every detail has been planned. Every detail. It's most fortunate. He considers himself fortunate and the familiarity that he will bring to this case as we will see next week uh, gives him special ears to understand everything that the Apostle Paul is about to share. I have one fourth point as we bring this sermon to a close and pick it up next week because... Yes, we see his Christian curiosity as a prequel to the message. We see his prominent pomp and how his life is a wreck, even though exterior, on the exterior he looks so powerful. We see this fortunate familiarity, how his whole life, including his sister and brother-in-law, are all now woven into the story, including his uncles and great-grandfather. But also we behold this final king's, not only fortunate familiarity, but the rightful ruler. We behold the final king's rightful ruler. I want to go back to the original message that Paul shared with him. Excuse me, not Paul. This is uh, Agrippa sharing with him in verse 19. He's saying 
See this in chapter 25, verse 19. They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, which happens to be, by the way, Agrippa's religion, and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And then later next week in his testimony, chapter 26, verse 22, to this day, chapter 26, verse 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, Paul says. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, great being you, King Agrippa, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What did the prophets that you believe in and Moses that you believe in said would come to pass? Verse 23, that the Christ, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, the name Christ is not a last name. The name Christ is a title for Jesus, which means he is the anointed one, namely he is the king. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Jesus, he's saying, who died and rose again. This Jesus from their religion. I've been preaching what the prophets and Moses said would happen all along. That the Christ, Jesus Christ, is the king, would die and rise from the dead. And as the king is sitting there, and as his great-grandfather heard about this king, they're very aware, very aware that the promise was never made to their dynasty. It was always made to King David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there would always be one to rule over the throne of God's people, the rightful ruler out of Bethlehem. None of them are from Bethlehem, and they are seeing the dominoes fall. And the rightful ruler has now emerged. He has died and risen again from the dead, according to the prophet Isaiah 53. Light and life to shine to the nations. And as he is hearing this message about the king, he is hopefully, hopefully realizing that king is not me. That king will never be me. Now, kings don't like to give up power, do they? Look at Russia right now, right? They do not give up power easily. But God, God can take down any king and he can take down any dynasty. And in six years, actually seven, the Jewish subjects will overthrow his rule. There will be a war between the Romans and between the Jews. And by the way, he sides with Rome. He departs, pulls back from his own people. He loses the king. He loses the kingdom. He loses it all. He loses his power. And at the end of his life, he is a single, childless man with no heir for the throne and no throne to even rule on, even if he had a child. That this power-hungry great-grandfather who thought that he could kill Jesus even his great uncle who got to see Jesus and as they nailed him to the cross, they put foreboding but prophetically true over the cross, the king of the Jews, as they wrapped him in a purple robe and they put a crown on Jesus' head. There the king was coronated and exalted and lifted up high on the cross, destroying this dynasty once and for all. And the king of David, the Davidic line, was once again restored. And Jesus died, rose from the dead, and ascended on high, and now rules and reigns 
over the kingdom of God here in Havertown, greater Philadelphia, America, Russia, Ukraine. Jesus Christ is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. And King Agrippa I cannot stop him. King Agrippa II will never have that final rule or reign. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, there is a little crown in all of our hearts that wants to hold on. You can't have that seat. That seat has already been claimed. And as we bring this message to a close, we're going to sing a song about the King of Kings. Because here's how you enter the kingdom of God. You repent. You take the crown off of your own heart and your own head. And you kneel before King Jesus. Do not make the mistake of Herod and all of his family. Because Jesus Christ is the rightful king. And he's the greatest king. And if you submit to him... Just like the Apostle Paul, regardless of your circumstances, you can be in chains, in rags, and you are rich, and you are free. Or you can have everything in the world, and yet lose your own soul. Do not make that mistake. Jesus has come to restore God's rule and reign in your life, in our world, Come into his kingdom today through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Please bow your heads as we pray. If you'd like to receive Jesus as king and savior of your life, before we sing this final song, just slip up your hand so I can lead you in a prayer of repentance. If you'd like to take the crown off of your heart and your head today, Today could be the day of your salvation where the shackles come off, where you experience freedom, where you experience that joy that could never be taken from you. Is there one today that would like to receive Christ? Just raise your hand. I see you. Who else? Anybody else? All of heaven rejoices over one. We thank you for the one and we rejoice. Lord, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive me for trying to be king of my life or trying to keep the crown on my own head and my own heart. Lord, I know that you are right. I know that you are king. I know that you are Lord. I know that you are savior today. Thank you, Jesus, that you fulfill all of the promises of God. The whole Bible, the prophets, the apostles, everything points to you, Jesus, especially your death and resurrection for me. As I lift my hand to my heart and faith and any online that are listening and anybody that did slip up a hand but it's praying this right now, just pray this, say, Jesus, I bow before you today. I receive you as my king. I receive you as my savior. I receive you as my rightful ruler. I turn to you and I receive the forgiveness of my sins and I receive your Holy Spirit. Set me free. May I follow you as your loyal subject in your kingdom. Now into the eternal kingdom, I pray. And for the church, God, we pray. We thank you for governments. We thank you that you appoint government leaders. But Lord, may we never lose sight that you are the king, that they are your subjects. 
Lord, we pray into Russia and Ukraine, and we pray, King Jesus, intervene right there, right now. We pray, God, that we would be men and women who never lose our curiosity in Jesus, that we find all of our joy not on the external pomp, but what is happening inside of our souls, and that, Jesus, you would renew us from the inside out be our rightful ruler. Thank you that you have already saved us, but God, we confess there are areas where we creep in and want to grab control. We yield that to you afresh as we sing the song that you, Jesus, you are the King of kings. We thank you and pray it in Jesus' name.